Well, happy Father's Day to all the fathers that are here this morning. What an important and humbling position God has placed us in. I mean, think about it. He uses us, mere men, to be his instruments, to be his conduits, to be his vessels. And he calls us as fathers to serve like Christ. He calls us as fathers to lead like Christ. He calls us as fathers to love like Christ. He calls us as fathers to pour ourselves out for our families to the glory of God, to be like Christ. But I wonder as we think about Father's Day, what sets us apart as fathers who follow Christ? Is it our status? Or is it our abilities to get along with others? Or is it that we can evangelize and share the gospel with others? Or is it because we know good theology, we know right doctrine? Or is it because we discipline our children and train them up in the Lord? Well, our final passage this morning tells us what distinguishes a believer from the rest of the world. John 13, 35 says this. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Christ says the identifying mark, the distinguishing mark that shows that we are authentic followers of Christ is found in our love for one another. So let's open our Bibles now to John 13. Verses 31 through 35, John 13, verses 31 through 35, where we will be today. And I've entitled this message, Give Glory, Give Love. So let's go to our Father as we begin this morning. Holy Father, as we've mentioned, that you have decided to work through your creation, work through people, Father, to glorify yourself, Father. You've decided to work through us in a way that we can actually be conduits, be vessels, be instruments of your love to the world around us and to the church that we're involved in, Father. I ask that you help us to take this responsibility very seriously, Father, that we are committed believers in the local church, that we don't have a consumeristic mindset of church, but that we are willing to die for the brothers and sisters in the membership that we are involved in, Father. So be with us this morning. Help us to take such a calling seriously in Christ's name. Amen. So for the past few weeks, we have been seated with the disciples, listening to Christ Jesus, hanging on his every word. We have watched as Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. We have seen Christ pronounce that Judas, among the twelve, is a traitor. He's a false disciple amongst them. 
Which takes us to this morning. In John 13, 31, which starts by saying this. When he, that is Judas, had gone out. Let's stop there for a minute. So Judas leaves to betray Christ, which was the final step for God's plan to come to fruition, to come to pass. The final key has turned to set things in motion, right? But the ironic thing about all this is that Satan is working for God unknowingly, right? Listen to what the last part of verse 27 says in John 13. Satan entered him. That means Satan entered Judas. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly, right? So Satan enters into Judas to make sure he goes through with betraying Christ. But what is ironic about this is that Satan thinks this will destroy God's plan. This will allow him to be God. But in reality, it is the exact opposite. This is exactly what God wanted to happen from the first place. Let's look at Acts 2.23, which says this. Jesus was delivered according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, it says. Satan, who is beyond any human wisdom. Satan, who is more devious. He is more sinister than any of God's created creation who is more wicked, who is more hateful than the worst of men was being played by God the whole time. Satan is a mere pawn on God's chessboard. He is a tool in God's toolbox. But I'm afraid that many times Christians give Satan way too much power. They give him way too much authority, which causes them to have a skewed view of God and Satan as they treat them as equals. This somewhat relates to my household right now. My two-year-old. No, this has nothing to do with the terrible twos and Satan. Maybe it does. But that's not the point here. But often the two oldest boys, my two oldest boys, feel like they have to obey the two-year-old in the house. For example, Luke, our six-year-old, will come running and say, Daddy, Joby, which is our two-year-old, said I have to give him my toy. And I'll ask Luke, who's six, did you give him your toy? And he will often say yes. And I will ask him, why did you give the two-year-old your toy? And he will say, because Joby said, I better give it to him. Well, I'm really not sure or exactly understanding why the older boys feel the need to give such authority to the two-year-old in the house. But similarly, this is what many Christians are doing if they have this dualistic approach to God and Satan, to good and evil. We end up giving Satan more authority than he actually has in our lives. Martin Luther, the great reformer, once said this, Satan is nothing more than God's dog on a leash here to do his bidding. I wonder this morning if we have the, this right view of Satan, recognizing that, yes, he is powerful. He is a roaring lion ready to devour who he can. But to God, he is absolutely nothing. His tragic control of situations are always used to 
further glorify the Father, to further help God in his agendas. We have to remember, church, that God is God, and there is no one like our God. Amen? So let's go back to our main text, where we are now in John 13. We're still in verse 31, the second part of it, to 32, and it says this. Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So when Judas the traitor leaves Christ and turns his attention, when when Judas leaves, Christ turns his attention to his glorification. He says, now is the time the Son of Man will be lifted up. He will be glorified. And when we think about Christ being glorified, our minds may go back to when Jesus walked into Jerusalem, that triumphal entry in Matthew 21, 8, 9, which says this, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna! To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. We see here that the people were praising Christ. They were cheering for Christ. They were worshiping Christ. They were honoring Christ. But the glorification that Jesus is talking about in the upper room with the disciples in our passage this morning, doesn't lead to praising him. It doesn't lead to honoring him. It doesn't even lead to respecting him. The glorification of Christ was led to the ultimate humiliation that was displayed on the cross. This ultimate humiliation, though, wasn't directed at Christ. Although he was humble, he was brought very low. But his sacrifice brought the deepest humiliation, not to him, but to his creation, us. His death brought the reality of the depth of our depravity. His death brought the reality of our sinfulness, which leads to point number one. The glorification of Christ on the cross was the reality of our humiliation. Let me say that again. The glorification of Christ on the cross was the reality of our humiliation, not Christ's. I mean, think about it. We were so bad that God himself left heaven and came down in the form of a man to save us. And what was our response to that? What was the people's response to Christ? Was it gratefulness or gratitude? Wow, how blessed we are. I mean, God has come in the flesh. May we live our lives for Christ. Thank you, God, for sending your son down to earth for us. I mean, is that how the world responded to Christ? The answer is no, obviously, right? Instead, we hear the chanting going on. Crucify him! Crucify him! We don't want Jesus. We don't want a Messiah like Christ. We don't want to worship 
a God like Christ. John 3.19 says this. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. The people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We see here that the world didn't want the light. The world didn't want a Messiah like Christ. The world didn't want to worship the true God. At one time, let us remember, we didn't want to live for God's glory either. We didn't want to worship Christ. We wanted to live for our own glory, live for ourselves instead of live for Christ as well. So Christ, motivated to glorify the Father, did what we couldn't do for ourselves. As we blindly continued running headlong into our rebellion against God, he secured our future righteousness. He paid for our sinfulness on the cross, amen? It was for our future grace. The glorious exchange took place. The great transfer took place that would ensure God's elect to be saved. Every one of them. And because of such faithfulness, such faithfulness of Christ Jesus, Philippians 2, 9 through 11 tells us, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. You might be thinking, why was it that God the Father is glorified because Jesus died on the cross? Why was he glorified for that? As Jesus says in John 13, 31 in our passage, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. That's what it says, right? It goes back to the fact that Christ was faithful, Christ was obedient. Christ submitted himself fully and wholly to the Father. Jesus says in John 6.38, For I have not come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus says in John 5.19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. It's not just that Jesus does the Father's will, but that it's impossible for him to act on his own will. He says and does what he sees his father doing moment by moment. It's an active obedience. It's not a nonchalant attitude. It's not just a sort of, oh yeah, the, God, the uh, father's doing something over there and I know what he wants me to do. It's not that attitude at all. It's an intense focus. It's a moment by moment watching what his father is doing. That's what we get with Christ, which leads to point number two. We glorify the father by obeying the son. We glorify the father by obeying the son. 
Paul the Apostle's motto was to live as Christ, right? That's what we get in Philippians 1. Paul's language of submission to Christ is similar to Christ's submission to the Father. The question is, how do we actually obey Christ? I mean, where do we learn how to really follow Christ? I guess we could look for signs to follow Christ. I mean, people are waiting for God to tell them something through some sort of fleece experience all the time. Maybe it's in a cloud in the sky, or maybe it's in a ruffling of a branch, or maybe it's in what somebody said. And we read into it and say, oh, that's God speaking to me. Or maybe, maybe this is a good one. We go with how we feel. We go with how we feel. Maybe we get a warm feeling in the pit of our stomach and we believe this must be Christ leading me. I mean, this would work out great in marriage, right? Hun, I know you want me to go mow the yard. I know that. But I feel like God is leading me in another direction. I feel like the Lord is leading me just to relax and watch the basketball game tonight. Or, hun, I know we talked about putting new tires on the car, but I have this warm sensation in the pit of my stomach, which means Christ is telling me I should use that money to get a 72-inch TV instead of put tires on the car. Obviously, when we make choices off of how we feel, we will make choices that usually work to our benefit. They work in our favor, right? But in reality, we aren't usually hearing from God anyway, but experiencing indigestion from last night's meal, right? The question that we are still asking, though, is then how do we make decisions to obey Christ, to live for Christ? Because every day, we have to make choices, right? How are we going to handle this situation? How should we deal with this conflict? How should we treat others? And that's not considering the big decisions like, who will we marry? And how should I act in marriage? How should we raise our children? Where should we live? What job should I take on? The point is life is full of choices. And how we make decisions reveals who we really and truly are glorifying in our life. So let me give us a few tips on glorifying God with the decisions we make. Tip number one, we glorify God by following Scripture. I know that's unique, right? We glorify God by following Scripture. Scripture has to be the lens that we filter all of life. But to follow God's Word, we actually have to study it to know what it says. We need to be a student of the word of God. So we study it. We meditate on it. We memorize it. We follow it. Our lives are supposed to be saturated in the word of God. And this is similar, right, to Christ who did and said everything that the Father told him to do in whatever situation that he faced. But sometimes it's hard to figure out to how we follow God's word. If there's no like clear command to the situation that we're in, there's no thus saith the Lord with our situation. 
So often, as believers, we miss that under direct commands, we can find guiding principles or great pearls of wisdom to follow as well. For example, 1 Corinthians 6.14 says this, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. The command is not to be close or best friends or marry someone who is an unbeliever, right? That's on the surface. But below the surface is wisdom. Wisdom that tells us that we are called to be close, that we are called to be in close fellowship. We're called to have our best friends within the church body, within believers in Christ Jesus. So you might be thinking at this point, Terry, you're really motivating me to really want to follow the Bible. And I say great to that. But then you say, I want to really follow the Bible because I want my best life now. I want God's best in my life. I don't want to miss God's best. Well, let me ask us, what is the motivation of an individual to follow the Bible to have a better life? I mean, there is a lot of me's and I's in what this person has just said. The reality is when we are worried about missing God's best in our life, the focus is not upward. It's inward. It's focused on ourselves. God's glory isn't the goal any longer, but our life. We are consumed with following the Bible for our own benefit instead of pleasing God. Second tip to making decisions to glorify God. Tip number two, we follow Scripture for God's glory, not our own. This is obvious too, right? We follow Scripture for God's glory, not our own. We aren't called to just obey scripture with self-centered motives, with a heart that is centered on self, as we see with Christ who followed the Father because of his love, because of his zeal for Christ Jesus. That's why he followed the Father. I mean, think about it. If Christ was going to follow the Father for his own benefit, do we think he would have went to the cross? What's the old saying? Luke, Luke shared this old saying with me. I didn't know it was an old saying. Doing the right thing for the wrong reason is still the wrong thing. Final tip for making decisions to glorify God. Tip number three. We glorify, glorify, glorify God by following scripture and bathing ourselves in prayer. Let me try to say that again. We glorify God by following scripture and bathing ourselves in prayer. Prayer. Paul says to pray on all occasions, that we pray on all situations that we are facing. Studying God's word and prayer reveals our dependence on God. No prayer, no study means we are making decisions in our own strength. And some of us may love to study God's word. We may love theology. But if our prayer life is pretty anemic, this reveals we again are working in our own strength instead of walking in faith, right? But similarly, if we pray without saturating ourselves in God's word, we are just airing our own opinions to God on how we feel instead of lining up what we are praying with what God's word actually says. 
So at the end of the day, the decisions we make need to be made on our knees with our eyes buried in the word of God. Amen? The question is, are we spending time with God in prayer and study? I know most of us know that we should pray, that we should study, but how many of us are actually doing it daily? But let's go back to our passage in John 13, and now we're in verse 33. And Jesus says this, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So Jesus knows his time is short. The cross looms in the background, and Christ turns to his disciples in a tender, endearing, sad, heartfelt way and says, little children, Little children, it would be comparable to a mother or father talking to their children. But it's not just talking, but having a serious, in-depth, heart-to-heart with them. It looks like a father sitting down with his children to tell them the heart-wrenching news that their mommy has cancer. And the father, trying to hold back his emotions, hold back his tears, speaks with tenderness. Speaks with sadness, with pain in his voice, with love for his beloved children. This is the picture we see with Christ as everything is set in motion, as Judas just left to betray him. And you can sense the urgency, the affection, the love Christ has for his close friends and companions. And like little children, not understanding the gravity of mommy having cancer, well, the disciples are like little children in the fact that they just don't understand the depth of what Jesus is trying to tell them at that moment. But Christ, like a father, feels for what they are about to experience in the near future. So Christ says this in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. So the disciples are sitting with Christ, listening intently, and Jesus says out of the blue, I have a new commandment for you guys. This must have floored them. I mean, These were good Jews. They knew the Old Testament to a T. And now Jesus says he has something new to add to what they already know? So the question is, what was this new commandment from Christ? Must be something exciting, right? That you love one another just as I loved you. You also are to love one another. You might be thinking, this doesn't sound so new and exciting. I mean, wasn't this the commandment in the Old Testament? Haven't we heard this from the Old Testament? And I know you guys are smart, so you're all thinking of Leviticus right now, aren't you? 
Am I right? Leviticus, what, 19? Verse 18, right, which says this. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the Old Testament passage. It says, the way you love yourself, love your neighbor. So the standard in the Old Testament for loving others is how you are loving yourself. That's a pretty high standard, right? But Jesus here in John 13, 34 takes it to a whole new level. He blows the Old Testament standard away by saying to love one another just as I have loved you. So instead of the standard being yourself, Jesus tells the disciples, I want you to love like I loved you. In other words, I want you to love like Christ, who is God in the flesh, who loves perfectly. I want you to love like that. That's how I want you to love, which leads to point number three. We are called to love like God. Amen, right? We are called to love like God. The wives are thinking, finally, finally someone says it, right? You might be thinking, wow, it seems impossible to love others like we love ourselves. And now Christ says to love like he loves in perfect love? Well, We know the point is, we can't love like God loves, right? We can't love that way in our own strength. We can't love like Christ. We can't love others even like we love ourselves within ourselves, right? That's why we should be driven to the cross. That's why we turn to Christ. We can't do it on our own. That should encourage us to depend on God for our strength, right? To walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. I wonder, how many of us are begging God to help us to love others? I mean, think about it. We beg God to help us in our marriages, in training our children. We plead with God to show us what we should do. I gotta know God right now, right? We ask God to show us where we should live. But I wonder how many of us beg, plead, cry out to God to grow us in our love for others. You might be thinking, I need to love others like Christ. I got it. I need to depend on God. I really need to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit to love like Christ. I got it. But the question I still have is what does it actually look like to love like Christ, right? And I would take us to a very familiar passage to start. John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. We see that biblical love starts with giving as God made the decision to give his son for us. And this giving wasn't based on feelings and emotions, but on his love for the father. I mean, you can imagine God watching his perfect son being mistreated, mocked, beaten, brutally killed for us. And he still went to the cross anyway because of his love for us. So we have Christ who loves the Father and decides to go to the cross because of his great love for the Father. And we have 
God's great love for us that had this plan in the first place to send his son to the cross. Which leads to point number four. Biblical love is giving what is best towards another. Biblical love is giving what is best towards another. Let's think about this idea of love in context of marriage for a minute. That would be a good one. So as a husband... I'm supposed to lead my wife in love, which means I lead in giving what is best for my wife. This giving is my time, right? It's my energy. It's my thinking. It's my finances. It's my life. And it's to help her. It's to serve her. It's to lead her in ways of the Lord. But let me confess, before it looks like I'm bragging, that often I fail miserably as a husband, daily, I often struggle with sins like selfishness and pride. If you don't believe me, you can ask my wife. She can tell you. Examples. So please don't think I have this all figured out. But I trust that God is not done with me, nor is he done with you. Amen? How blessed we are, church. Biblical love is radical in the sense that we are to dispense this love to everyone. It isn't a love based on how we feel or what others deserve. Biblical love is not earned, but it is based on what God has already done for us. Going back to the husband again, practically it looks like a husband who listens to his wife. It looks like a husband who is trying to understand his wife. It looks like a husband who prays with his wife. It looks like a husband who encourages his wife. It looks like a husband who is willing to help and serve his wife. It looks like a husband who leads spiritually in the home. It looks like a husband who gives his all to his wife because of what Christ has done for him. Amen? But overall, biblical love isn't just for marriage. Although, if all of us in here practice biblical love in our marriages, it would transform our marriages. It would transform us from the inside out. Biblical love is radical. Because we are supposed to give it to whoever God places in front of us. It's not based on how nice they are or what they deserve. So we give towards others freely because God has so freely and graciously given to us. So when someone is mean to us, we should not react in kind, right? We should not be mean back or angry, but instead we should show kindness to them. And I know this is hard. Again, I struggle with things like this. And again, it's not that the person deserves our kindness either. But we have to remember that we didn't deserve God's kindness, his grace either. And yet God gave it to us anyway. So now we live a life of love towards others. The question is, are we learning to love like Christ loved us? Are we giving our best to others 
because God gave us his best in his son, Jesus Christ. How this one truth about love could revolutionize our homes. How this one truth on love could revolutionize our marriages. How this one truth on love could revolutionize the family church. How this one truth on love could revolutionize Marco Island. It could turn Marco Island upside down. Jesus said again, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. So in context, Jesus is specifically saying that you, the disciples, love one another, and this relationship between the disciples and Christ would be comparable, it would be comparable to the church body loving one another. Which leads to point number five. Biblical love is a community centered on Christ. Point number five says that biblical love is a community centered on Christ. The church is called to be a diverse mix of people from all walks of life that come together for the common fellowship in Christ Jesus. So what holds us together is not our similarities per se. It's not that we have common hobbies like we all love to hunt or we all love to fish or play golf or ride motorcycles or all love to read in coffee shops, although I think all of you guys should like coffee shops from my perspective. Nor is the biblical community based on similar personalities or similar ethnicities. I mean, it does not matter if you are rich or you're poor or you're somewhere in the middle. It doesn't matter if you're white, brown, black, yellow. But what brings us together, what causes us to connect with one another is our deep love for Christ Jesus. Amen? This is why we can come together and grow in deep fellowship with one another because of our love, our passion for Christ. Our commonality is in Christ. Our lives are wrapped up, centered, focused on Christ. That's why a consumeristic attitude towards church doesn't work. It's not biblical. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 says this, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for the sake, died and was raised to life. So Paul here says that the love of God controls us, or in other versions it says compels us, right? To no longer live for ourselves, but Christ. That's what we're here to do, is put our focus on Christ. And Jesus displays this radical love to us by washing the disciples' feet. This is where we started a few weeks ago. In John 13, 4 and 5, Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. We see here that Christ's perfect love for the disciples was lived out in very practical, real ways. Amen? You may be thinking, okay, I'm supposed to wash people's feet. Is that what you're saying? 
Well, I guess you could say that, but I think we are looking at foot washing more as an example of how Christ served others by pouring out his love selflessly to you and me. If we still are a little foggy on applying biblical love, practically, well, Paul makes it abundantly clear in Philippians 2, 3, when he says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Wow. Place others above yourselves. When? Every day. Every day? When every day? Every minute of the day. Place others above ourselves every day. Your desires, your wants, your needs. Well, put them all on hold, church. Put them all on hold and make others your priority and place their desires, their wants, their needs above your own. That's what Paul's saying. So biblical love is not easy. It goes against our flesh. That's why Jesus said to pick up your cross daily, right? We have to die daily to the flesh. We need to walk in repentance daily. But the good news is, as we learn to love, as we live for others instead of ourselves, we grow in the fruit of the power of the Holy Spirit, right? So we grow in fruit like love, more love. We grow in fruit love like peace and joy and patience. What would our lives look like if we had more joy today? What would our lives look like if we had more peace in our life, right? And finally... What will be the outcome of practicing biblical love? What will be the outcome besides what it does to us? John 13, 35 says this. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, what a humbling message You've given us this morning, recognizing how we are called to love like you love. That we are called to give ourselves up and live for your glory instead of our own. How hard it is for us, Father. Especially as we continue to forget, we continue to forget to walk by the Spirit. And we sort of continue to walk in our own dependence on ourselves, Father. And as we fall flat on our faces and how we love others, how we love our spouse, how we love our neighbors, how we love even our enemies, you remind us that our dependence has to be on you. And you fill us with perfect love. You empower us to live for your glory instead of our own. Help us to be a church that loves like that. In Christ's name, amen.